And Jesus said, if we will build our lives upon the foundation of his word, and his love, that we will find life. And he also said, if we build our lives on his foundation, when the storms of life come, and we've all been in the midst of this collective storm for the last two years, and today just has that sense of like, what is happening? But if we build our lives upon his foundation, upon his words, when the storms of life come, we will not be shaken because he loves us and because his word stands true and because his word speaks the truest word about us. And so today we gather here around this table to hear a word that is true. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear the truth. So we welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesia, so good to see you. Grab a seat. Sound beautiful. Today we're starting a teaching series on the self. And if there's anything that our culture does not need help in establishing a vocabulary for, it is the self. But oftentimes... We can tell the things that are most vital, the most important, by looking at the things that our culture kind of distorts. So Christopher West says, if you want to tell what is most sacred in the world, look at what that which is so easily profaned. And you hear the sense of self that is offered by our culture. And today we want to begin this, this examination what does it mean to have a self in the way of Jesus? What does it mean to receive ourself? And so I, we're going to look at this passage that I think contains so much of, of how Jesus understood himself, of how he establishes a self in order to offer us a self. But I'm really excited for this journey over the next, it's going to be about eight weeks of this teaching series of understanding what does it mean to have a self? What does it mean to know ourselves? And then ultimately, what does it mean to give ourselves away? So I'm going to read just a brief passage as we get into our teaching text for today from Luke chapter 3. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. A voice said, You are my son. The beloved, with you, I am well pleased. Now, it's that season of life that comes around every year. Anybody have any New Year's resolutions? It's okay. Yeah, let's, anybody have one? I, I made a few. Yeah? Anybody? I, I, I sort of found, found myself somewhere between, like, sadness and boredom over the holidays and just kept eating. So there was a the very obvious New Year's resolution that was presented to me by my own decisions. And I, I don't know about you. I tend to be a little dubious of, like, cultural, like, things that just kind of come around all the time. I, I get a little, like, I'm like, ah, whatever. New year, new you. It never seems to work out for anybody. But, but New Year's resolutions, I'm kind of into. I kind of love the process of self-inventorying. I love the sense of hope. Like, we need, like, some sort of a sense that things can be new, right? That we are not locked in this cycle of brokenness that will never change. I love what Pope Francis says about us. He says, Jesus came to save us from the lie that people can't change. And New Year's, for all of its cultural trappings, is about welcoming in a sense that a new possibility, 
a new possibility might be on the horizon. Now, I want to commend you to the practice of taking inventory, of assessing, making a plan for advancement, whether you're setting physical, financial, or spiritual goals. Those are all good things. Again, we are not disembodied souls. We live in the real world. And what we're after is a sense of congruence between the life that God has given us and the way that we live our lives in our day-to-day interactions. And we're going to talk throughout this series about how, how all these seemingly disparate parts, you know, we tend to think of ourselves in compartments. We, th- we tend to think of our work life or our physical, our spiritual life, our love life, all these things. But the self that Jesus offers to us is whole. Jesus was a complete harmony of word and deed. Everything he said, he lived out. Now, that's not true of any of us. We're all hypocrites at some level, right? But Jesus invites us to be holy as he is holy, to embrace his congruence, to find his life. And so I want to commend you to the practice of creating New Year's resolutions. And if you have a keen sense of the story that Jesus is offering to us, maybe you were raised in church, and you may be asking to yourself, okay, I've never been to this church or like, that, you know, we, we're starting a new series and we're talking about the self. Like, isn't this exactly the kind of navel gazing that Jesus warns us against? Doesn't he say, like, you find yourself by giving yourself away? Hello, you too. Of course he does. But Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? And we often miss this. He, he responds. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. And the second commandment is like it to love your neighbor as yourself and so there's really three components there there's loving God there's loving your neighbor and then there's this assumption that you have some sense of yourself that you can love yourself now I think if many of us were honest when we look at ourselves what we find is not love what we find is not uh, some sense of assured identity what we find is shame And so we're going to look at that throughout this series. And I think if we were to project and ask the question, what does God see when he sees us? Many of us would feel that same sense of shame. But what if God is calling you to receive the gift of yourself in order that you may love God and love your neighbor more fully? What if that's exactly the gift that Jesus came to offer to you? You know, the the Christian story, the Christian faith is so unique in that, yes, Jesus calls us to find ourselves by giving ourselves away. But it's also a call to become fully the unique individual, the image of God that you were called to bear in the world. You are one in a literal billion. God has called you to man. And that's not just special culture talking like everybody gets a trophy That is an invitation to find the fullness of life that Jesus has for you. St. Augustine said this, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. It's only in knowing ourselves that we can come to love God. We can come to, to express God in the world. We're called to be a priesthood, that we can do that in the way that he's called us to. Now, it may be surprising given how often the kingdom vision, what Jesus is calling us to, and the vision of our culture when it comes to so many things are at odds. 
Like so many times when you say, okay, this is Jesus' way, this is our culture's way, this is the goal, so many times those two things are completely different. And when it comes to the self, I find that our culture's goal and Jesus' goal, the end point, the destination for us, are one and the same, to live authentically as your true self. Now, how many of you have been watching some show on Netflix or, you know, some reality TV and, like, people, the advice given is just be yourself. Just be your true self. You know, be your best self. Like, that's, that's pretty common cultural vocabulary, right? And I don't think that that's completely wrong. Now, I, I, what I think we get wrong in our culture, in our sort of default settings, what I think we get wrong is the way that we go about knowing and living out of our true self. The script that we're given by our culture actually doesn't lead to the destination that it promises. Live your true self, but then they hand you a map that will not get you there. And for this teaching, I, I just want to kind of start out our series with a framework. Everything we do here at Ecclesia centers on Jesus as best as we're able. And so when we talk about the self, we look to Jesus. And, and this is the thing we so easily miss about Jesus. Jesus was not a robot, some divine being floating through life, giving pithy sayings like this is what the kingdom of God is like, like, you know, stern face, no fun. Jesus was a man. This is what we celebrated at Christmas, that God is in the flesh, moving into the neighborhood. He has taken on the whole of our life. This is who Jesus was. Jesus had nicknames for his friends. He called Peter Rocky. He called John and James the sons of thunder. I don't know what that's about. But Jesus was joyful. G.K. Chesterton says of Jesus, he was the most brilliant man who ever lived. He was brilliant. We walked the streets where Albert Einstein walked. And Jesus, the one whom Einstein was made in his image, walked this very world. And we have to keep that in mind as we try to receive a self that Jesus offers us. Because I think if we allow Jesus to be this divine example and not actually human, if we allow him to be that, then we can't receive the life that he offers to us. But this is the mystery of the incarnation. Fully God, fully man. How do we get there? It's a mystery. But this is the life that Jesus is calling us to. So I want to, just from the very beginning put out the, the framework that we're going to use today. We're going to contrast Jesus' vision of the self with our culture's vision of the self. Daniel, there's a slide there if you don't mind. Thank you so much. So Jesus' self is received as gift, and we're going to see this in the scriptures. Our culture, you, you have to build your identity. You have to build your sense of belonging. You have to achieve it. You have to establish your name. What do you do? Why do you matter? Jesus' vision of self, denial of self, leads to life. In our sense, our, the, the, the sense of cultural script that we get is to deny yourself, is to kill something that's true inside of you. And that's why I put self in scare quotes there. We'll get to that. Jesus' sense of self limits equal freedom. And our sense of self limits repression, slavery. They're constrictions. Jesus' sense of self, he understands himself to have a vocation of liberation. He is set free to set others free. 
And for ourselves, we often have a vocation of self-actualization. Again, taking that, that call to narrate our own lives. But then in, in our sense of living and doing, that we have to establish something and build a name for ourselves in the, the language of Genesis 11. Jesus' self is differentiated from the anxiety around him. He's a non-anxious presence in a world that will demand of him that he do other than what he has come to do. Our, our culture's self is just a constant swirl being wrapped up in the whirlwind of everything that's going on. And the last one is sort of a filter for all of it. We'll find this as we look at the text today. Jesus' self is completely understood within the architecture of the Word of God. The Word of God is the map, the script that he understands himself by. And for us, our heart is the map, our feelings, that which we intuitively sense. And so we're going to look at uh, Luke chapters 3 and 4 because they, I think they give us such a just brilliant view of what it means to, to have a self and how Jesus understood himself. So I, I hope this blesses you today. It really blessed me as I was uh, studying for this teaching today or this week. Let's begin in Luke 3, verse 22 again. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, and heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is an incredible scene. And if you look at all four of the biographies about Jesus, the books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all start in some way with this scene. Jesus has come to receive baptism. He's identifying himself within the story of Israel. Again, Jesus is not this divine outlier living life outside the, the parameters of normal human existence. Jesus enters into the story. In one text, John says, um, Jesus, are you sure you need to be baptized? And he says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is entering into our suffering, into our story. And as Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and a voice comes from heaven. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. In Luke's account of this story, which we're reading today, we're not told who can hear this voice from heaven, but we understand the important part that Jesus hears it. And it's important to understand that Jesus, as he is baptized, hears this voice from heaven. Jesus embodies a self that is a gift, a blessing. It is not achieved. It is not earned. And each of the Gospels starts with this pronouncement by the Father because Jesus, throughout his life, will do incredible things. He will heal people. He will transform lives. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will give his life on a cross to redeem the entire world. But God doesn't wait for Jesus to do all of those incredible things for him to say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. That is the foundation and the beginning of all of Jesus' work. Jesus' identity, his self, is received by gift, not accomplished even by somebody as accomplished as Jesus. The Father loves the Son. Jesus' self is grounded in blessing. Our culture tells us that we're only worthy of love based upon our own feelings about ourselves or what we can accomplish or what we can offer to the world. Alan Noble says this about our existence. He says, the, fo the most fundamental truth about existence 
in our culture is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing values, of electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I'm the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. Contrast that with Jesus' coming out of the waters, hearing the voice from heaven. You are my son. In Ecclesia, mysteriously, because of what Jesus has done, we are in Christ. This is our birthright, our promise from the Father, his word to us that stands true. Now, how many of us wake up each morning and think to ourselves, I am a daughter. I am a son of the king of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth. God is with me and he likes me. He's pleased with me. Everything that happens to me today will happen within the horizon of that infinite love. Did you wake up like that this morning? You're like, you know, settle down. It's like 11 o'clock in the morning. But most of us, we wake up to our news feeds. We wake up to Instagram feeds telling us how broken the world is or how awesome other people's lives are. But Jesus' fundamental orientation and the blessing that he will return to throughout his life, if you read Jesus' life, he's constantly stealing away to be alone with the Father, to be in that place of blessing. To be in that place of discernment, God, I know who I am. What do you have for me to do today? Jesus' fundamental orientation is exactly that. I am a child of the Most High. I have come to do what he has for me to do in the world. His fundamental orientation is blessedness, belovedness. And we who are in Christ, what is true of him is true of us. Because we are his sons and daughters. He has lavished that love upon us. He has invited us into the mystery and dance of triune Father, Holy Spirit, Son, love. Jesus invites us to take on his self. The second sense of self that we see, that we saw in that original framework, is that denial of self leads not to death, but to life. Let's look in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, immediately after this scene, after this like divine blessing, Jesus receives, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. The immediate thing that happens next is Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And notice what happens here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. I'm going to say that again. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Immediately following this scene, Jesus is led to the wilderness, tempted by the devil, and notice what the devil says to him. If you are the son of God. Remember the word that was spoken? Jesus' baptism. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. And Satan goes immediately for that sense of self. And I can see a Satan will attack the very core of our God-given selves. He is the accuser. He is the liar. He's seeking to distort the truth that we have received from the father. The question is just another way of phrasing the serpent's question from Genesis 3. Did God really say that? 
Satan is cutting directly to the core of Jesus' self here. Does God really love you? Does he really have your best interests at heart? Kurt Thompson, a, psycho, a psychologist specializing in interpersonal neurobiology, talks about we, we all as humans have fundamental needs, and this helps us develop healthy attachments throughout our lives. We have fundamental needs to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe, and to be secure. God's pronouncement to Jesus that you are my son with whom I'm well pleased was God offering this healthy attachment out of which Jesus would live in the world. And Satan goes for that very sense of safety. Is God seeing you? You've been hungry here for 40 days. What's God doing? Hey, you have power. I can sense it. Hey, tell that, tell that stone to turn into a loaf of bread there. Satan tries to strike at Jesus' identity and then tries to get him to prove himself By serving his own desires. Remember, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Some of us haven't eaten for 40 minutes and we're we're feeling it a little bit, right? And Satan says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus answers him. And notice, you'll see this as a theme. Jesus answers him with the scriptures. Refusing to serve his own flesh, but rather finding further freedom in identifying his truest desires. You see, Jesus is really hungry in this moment, right? That is a true desire. If he's human, 40 days, he senses a desire to eat. But Jesus operates out of this wellspring of his truer desires. Jesus desires more greatly, more uh, primarily to do the will of God. That is his primary orientation. And he offers us this sense of self. Our culture tells us the only way to discover our true selves is by giving in to our desires. That to to, to not give in to our desires is to repress them or to limit them, and it actually does violence to us. But Jesus shows us that the way to our true selves is not by, by denying our desires, but by discerning our truest desires. See, our culture has it right. We are desire oriented creatures. But our culture often stops too far upstream and doesn't realize that there are deeper desires. The deepest thing and truest thing about each one of us is our desire to know and to serve God. We were made to love him. And Jesus offers us a self. He's not immune to hunger in this scene, but he has a deeper well of desire than his hunger. And it's his desire to do the will of God. And notice throughout each of these scenes that Jesus manifests his true self. The word of God is the architecture. Jesus' sense of self, his imagination, his response when he is suffering all flows from the story and the words of the mouth of God. This is not because he's Jesus and Jesus speaks the language of scripture, but because Jesus has fully immersed himself in the salvation story, in the library of scripture And if the Bible was essential for Jesus' self-understanding, perhaps it might be primary to our own as well. Jesus shows us that denying himself actually doesn't lead to death but to life. And he also shows us that embracing limits does not lead to repression, does not lead to a sense of being constricted or enslaved, but it actually leads to freedom. Notice what Satan here does. Satan then intensifies his attack. His first temptation was for Jesus to prove his identity, both to Jesus himself and to Satan. Now, Satan says, okay, 
If you are who you say you are, then the world needs to know. Son of God's here. All right. Everybody needs to know this. So I will give you all the splendor of the world. Or you can go to the center of power in Jerusalem and fly, and they will all know that you are, in fact, the very one you claim to be. Verse 5. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give their glory. And all this authority for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. That's a whole nother teaching, but Satan is just saying, I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus doesn't refute him. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't do that. But Jesus just answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then it says, the devil took him to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus again answered him. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And again, just as with the bread and the stones thing, Jesus could have done exactly what Satan was tempting him to do. He could have come in splendor and triumph, announcing to the world the presence of God. He could have proved his identity as God's own son by performing wonders and miracles. But he discerns through the word of God that this is not the way. Jesus doesn't just default to whatever he thinks might be the most efficient way, what might be the most practical way, Jesus discerns through the word of God. He embraces his limits. He even establishes limits for himself, and he understands that these limits are not a hindrance to his identity or to him accomplishing his purposes in the world, but are the very way through which these things will be affirmed. And in our culture, we tend to think of limits as chains, as slavery, our culture tells us that we're not limited by our bodies, by our families of origin, or our relationships. But Jesus shows us a different way. De Jesus demonstrates that discerning our God-given limits in life, be they relationships, seasons of life, abilities, calling is exactly the way that we will come to glorify his name, to live the full life that Jesus offers to us and promises to us. It is exactly the way that we step into our identity as beloved of God and understand our vocation. We all have limits. We have to discern what are God-given limits. Sometimes things we experience as limits are not limits at all, but rather distractions that we've used to fortify our lives against stepping into the fullness of our vocation. Or sometimes against being in community. Anybody ever done that? No, I just, I don't have time for that. And like, really, what you're going to do is go binge on Netflix for like eight hours. We, we establish our own limits. We, we have some good sense of self-care in our world. But Jesus has discerned the sense of God-given limits. From this scene, Jesus goes and uh, Luke goes on and says, when he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a subtle and beautiful line that begins Luke 4 that tells us Jesus' custom was to regularly go to the synagogue. Again, Jesus showed up to church on Sundays, you know, the, the cultural equivalent. Jesus embraced what it meant to be human. Jesus wasn't like, I'm Jesus. I don't need to go like gather with worshipers. <laughs> He's in the synagogue, as was his custom. He was a first century Jewish man born into the Jewish story, following Jewish traditions. And on this particular day, we have this seminal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah 61. And then it says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were upon him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And now, while one of the unique aspects of Jesus' identity is to fulfill scripture, it's not exactly our call, you and I. The part that we are called to embody is Jesus' understanding of his vocation through the scriptures. Again, the word of God is the architecture of the self. You know, Christian culture became kind of funny and people started like, you know, do you have a life verse? And like that became sort of a thing for people to like, oh, that's, that's, that's lame, that's cheesy stuff. Can I just say that's not cheesy at all? Do you have a sense how you understand, like, maybe what God wants to do in and through your life, through the Word of God? Friends, I, it's more than just like a mantra. It will, it will animate you. It will animate God's presence in your life. And just like, again, establish, like, what, is, what do I think God has put me here to do? Jesus does that right here in Isaiah 61. Now, later he'll say, all Scripture is about me. But in Isaiah 61, he opens it up and he says, this is what I came here to do, to open the eyes of the blind. A vocation of liberation. Jesus is liberated in order to set others free. And our cultural script tells us that our vocations are to serve ourselves. That we're to build wealth or build a, a heritage, a lineage. That all of these things are about establishing our name in the world. But Jesus doesn't come to establish his own name. Jesus comes to set others free. Alan Mann calls our cultural defaults Project Self. But Jesus, in embracing his vocation, knows that his call is to set others free physically, spiritually. And as we discover our true selves in the story of God, as we receive the gift of the givenness of our beloved selves, you are God's daughters and sons with whom he is well pleased. As we deny ourselves and embrace our limits, we realize that we, too, just like Jesus, are called to partner with God in his redemptive work to bring others to their healed, full, sober, sexually pure, generous, at peace, to say it all in a word, liberated selves. And as Jesus reads from this scroll, he sits down, everybody's looking at him, and then it goes on in Luke 4, and there's this crazy juxtaposition that begins to take place. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. You ever had that moment where you're just receiving a compliment? It's like, that was so good. You're like, thank you. That means so much. I am awesome. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Jesus keeps talking. Any of you ever had one of these moments where somebody says something nice to you and then you keep talking and you're like, I should have shut up. 
Jesus goes on, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is welcomed in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, notice this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. They were just so happy with him two minutes ago, and now they're going to throw him off a cliff. But he passed, verse 30, through the midst of them and went on his way. Kind of a wild dynamic from a church service to everybody being happy with Jesus to everybody trying to kill Jesus. Verse 22, all spoke well of him, were amazed by him, but then Jesus keeps talking. And he talks about people who were outsiders to the story of God, to the people of God, and how God has historically found faith in those places. And by the end of his little history lesson, it says that all the people who were listening to what Jesus said were so filled with rage that they just tried to kill him. But verse 30 says that he passed through them. Now, whether he did this miraculously or just simply by resisting their violence, we're not told. Jesus' self-understanding as blessed by God, his denial of self, his embracing of limits, knowing his own vacation, vocation, allows him not to be caught up in the whirlwind of the world around him. Jesus could have stopped when all spoke well of him. That's a form of anxiety, you know, like when your self-identity and understanding is based upon the opinions of others. Jesus could have stopped talking and been like, everybody here thinks I'm great. This is very nice. You know, I know I'm going to be crucified at some point. You know, it's really nice just having a little moment where everybody's just happy with me. But he doesn't because Jesus understands his vocation. He understands his identity. He understands his limits. Jesus's vocation allows him not to be caught up in the whirlwind around him. Jesus is truly a non-anxious presence in the world. Now, we live in a world that wants to keep us constantly absorbed. There's a whole economy based around your attention to keep you constantly absorbed in cycles of anxiety. And again, I'm using anxiety in the sense, not in the clinical sense, that some of us you know, rightfully need uh, to, to go to a doctor and find medication for. I'm using anxiety in the sense of it's a natural response. It's that fight-or-flight response. Anxiety, in some ways, is a very normal thing. It's what we do with it um, I at that level. And so uh, our social media and news updates are designed to create anxiety about what we're missing out, what, how bad the world is. Uh, Bruce Sacerdote, a, a Dartmouth uh, economist, looked at the, the coverage of the coronavirus uh, from a perspective of the U.S. news media versus the world news media. He found that U.S. news media was, was reporting bad news about the coronavirus. And again, it's a bad thing, but there have been good updates within it. Vaccines, hey, you know, maybe this variant isn't as bad as, it, you know, as we initially thought, that kind of news. He said the U.S. news focused on the bad elements of that 87% of the time. These are the major news outlets across the political spectrum. He said the world news outlets focused on the bad news 51% of the time. And so there is a whole economy, a whole artifice built up around us sort of being just kind of mired in this anxiety loop. 
And on social media, events will occur. People will make rash judgments saying, be on the right side of history. And it's like, no, no, we probably don't know what that is just yet because it just happened. You have to make a statement about this. All of this is trying to capture us in this spiral of anxiety. And Jesus self invites us to a different way, a self received by gift, not achieved by grit. He demonstrates that a denial of self is not a way to death, but to life. He invites us to embrace limits as a means of finding freedom, not slavery. He invites us to a vocation of liberation, and he is indifferentiated from the anxiety around him. And it's all under the architecture and imagination of the word of God. And it will be this sense of self, Ecclesia, that will allow Jesus to endure the cross. As Jesus hangs on the cross, people will again challenge him, saying, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. And Jesus will return this cursing with blessing. And on the cross, Jesus will give of himself completely unto death so that the world may have life. On the cross, Jesus will embrace the limits of our humanity, of our sinfulness, and with his last breath will entrust himself again to the Father. Into your hands I commend my spirit in order to invite the entire world into the unlimited love of God. On the cross, Jesus will resist the anxiety of the crowd. And on the cross, as Jesus is beaten, pierced, cursed, and mocked, Scripture yet again will flow from his lips. Jesus understands himself through the imagination and architecture of the Word of God. Jesus reveals himself through the imagination and the architecture of the Word of God. Jesus lived the life of the true self to offer each and every one of us our true selves. And Ecclesia, we do nothing more this morning, that hear that same word that was spoken from the very beginning over Jesus. You are my son. You are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. That doesn't mean that there won't be self-discovery. There doesn't mean there won't be self-repentance, self-reflection, things that God is going to transform and renew in our lives. But we start from a place of God's unmerited favor upon us, his blessing, his grace, and we receive ourselves. And so as we begin this journey, I'm going to invite Derek up. Let us receive through the power of the Holy Spirit the sense that God, that same God who hovered over the waters of Jesus' baptism, that same God who hovered over the waters of creation, who said, let there be light, is trying to call us to our true selves. And so whether you're online or whether you're here, wherever you are, I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes and open your hands. We pray, come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we are tired from trying to establish a self of our own. We are tired of belonging to ourselves, God. We are tired of gritting our teeth, of bearing all the burdens, of building a life. And as we start out this new year, we start out with hopes and dreams, Lord. But would you make our truest desire known to us in this place? That our desire is to hear the word of blessing, to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe and secure in your view and in your gaze. And to live out of that sense of self. God, we receive your life for us. 
the life that you've offered to us on the cross and in your resurrection, God. The life that is life to the full, the life that is fullness and blessing and is vocation and purpose and is suffering alongside those who ache and hurt, God, who need to, to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, God. Call us to be our true selves. Help us to hear your words here this morning that we are your children. And that the story, the imagination that you've invited us into, God, is an understanding by the truest words that were ever spoken. The story of your gospel, Jesus. That we are not our own. That we belong to you. And in belonging to you, we find ourselves. Lord, as we pray, we're going to transition to a time of uh, singing in response. Lord, would your presence just be thick here in this place? Would your glory manifest itself as it did at Jesus' baptism, calling us to ourselves, Jesus? We receive the beauty of your presence in all of its mystery, in all of its divine glory, Jesus. You are here. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.